Last uh, year, I had uh, the opportunity to preach uh, at the uh, Tarrant County Jail. And although you know that I'm not a big deal, and I know that I'm not a big deal, to some of the inmates it is a big deal if I get to come because they watch me every week on DVDs. And so if I can be there in person, it's a big deal. And so we had a wonderful time, and they were very excited. And when I was through with my teaching time, a couple of the inmates grabbed me and said, Rick, did you know there aren't going to be any women in heaven? And I said, no, I've, I've read the Bible a lot, but I don't think I've ever seen that passage. I said, oh, it's in there. Can I see it? I'm not making this up. These two guys opened their Bible to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1 and read... And then he opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. (laughs) And they said, that proves there won't be women in heaven. Well, I question their interpretation. But it does make the point that people have often read the Scriptures in such a way as to write different groups... Out of God's story. And in Jesus' day, that group was called the Samaritans. We're studying these radical, amazing stories of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, unique to Luke's Gospel. And we started last week on this story that we all have heard all our lives called the Good Samaritan. But what I'm trying to get you to do is see this story through the eyes of the people who first heard it. And let its shock value return. Because in their day, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. So when Jesus starts the story and the priest passes by on the other side and the Levite passes by on the other side... Everybody knows the next guy coming down the road is going to be an ordinary Jew. And when he said, and a certain Samaritan came where the man was, their eyes got big. No, no, Jesus, don't write a Samaritan into the story. We write Samaritans out of God's story. Because in that day, to call somebody a Samaritan was about as big an insult as you could lay on somebody. The Jews in John chapter 8 are furious with Jesus. And they say to him, aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? That's about as low as you can go to tell somebody you're full of the devil and you're a Samaritan. You say, well, those were the religious leaders. Jesus people wouldn't think that way. We're in Luke chapter 10. One chapter earlier in chapter 9, it says he's heading toward Jerusalem. They're going through Samaria. And when the Samaritan village they came to realized he was heading to Jerusalem, they wouldn't give him anything to eat. How do you think Jesus' disciples responded to that? Look at these verses with me. It says, James and John saw this and said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. It's interesting to me that we know that Jesus was also not received in towns in Galilee, Jewish towns. They didn't ask for fire to come down then. But when Samaritans were rude, Jesus, you want us to torch them? The ugly truth is that bigotry and hatred and indifference are often justified in the name of religion. And in the name of religion, 
We find ways to write out our God story, the people we just don't want to tolerate. And that bad spirit prompted Jesus to tell a really good story. Try to hear it one more time through the ears of the people who all their lives were told, hate Samaritans. Because God does. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day... He took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What prompted that priest to be so callous? Why such a lack of compassion in a man who was supposed to represent the God of mercy? Was it just apathy? I doubt it. I suspect he didn't wish for anyone to get beat up and mugged. Was it fear? Perhaps he was afraid if they robbed him, maybe they're hiding behind the same rock and could rob me. But I'm going to suggest the biggest problem most likely was his sense of religious duty. You see, that priest had a dilemma. He had to weigh the clear Old Testament call to mercy against the equally clear Old Testament commandments to guard ritual purity. And he's a priest. There are particular commandments for him, and he is to represent to all of the people how important ritual purity is to God. And if he goes and tries to help that man, and that man is dead, he immediately, according to the law of Moses, becomes unclean. He's got to go back up to Jerusalem, and he's got to spend a week there making himself ritually clean again. So he's no use as a priest. He can't serve in the temple if he's not clean. He's probably already done his two-week stint in the temple. He's going down to Jericho where his family lives. He can't go home. So his family is going to be hurt. And his ministry is going to be hurt. And so I'm sure he could, in his mind, see all kinds of reasons why what God wants him to do is protect his ritual purity. And there's the Levite coming down the road. And so he can see the priest. And if the priest isn't going to help the man, who was the Levite to argue with the priest's interpretation of the law? So I'm not going to help him either. Their religion kept them from engaging. They saw their dilemma as a choice between duty and duty. Now the rabbis talk about this. 
Because sometimes in the law of God, it seems like you're supposed to do one thing, but you're also supposed to do something else, and you can't do both at the same time. And the rabbis called this the weightier and the lighter. And the rabbi said, sometimes you've got to make a call. Sometimes it seems like you can't obey both commands. You've got to make a choice. So you've got to decide which is the weightier command. And the priest decided. He said, above all else, I've got to protect my ritual purity. See, the tension here is between loving the law versus the law of love. I don't think it's that the priest didn't care that the man got mugged. But weightier to him than the law of love was loving the law. And the ugly truth is that priest and that Levite valued devotion to the law over people. Which is ironic because the purpose of the law is to produce devotion to people. And it was this tension that created constant tension between Jesus and his critics. And remember, who were Jesus' sharpest critics? It was the most religious crowd in the country. It was the tension over loving the law versus the law of love. Let me show you in the Gospel of Luke earlier a couple examples of this. Back in chapter 6. Look at it. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And his disciples began to pick some heads of grain. Rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Do you see the tension? They're hungry. And the law says a poor person can go by and pluck some grains from the corner of a field. But they say, but not on the Sabbath. I don't care how hungry you are on the Sabbath. You don't do that. Jesus answered them. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he gave us some also to his companions. And then he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Keep reading. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and he was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. You see the tension? I don't care how bad he's hurting. This is a Sabbath day. You don't do that today. You honor the ritual of Sabbath. That's more important than mercy. Now, the guy's got a shriveled hand, okay? It wasn't like he was at the point of death. He can go one more day with a bad hand. Jesus can heal him the next day, right? What do you think Jesus is going to do? Jesus knew what they were thinking and he said to the man with the shriveled hand get up and stand in front of everyone he didn't want anybody to miss this so they got up and stood there and then jesus said to them here's the tension i'm going to ask you what's lawful to do on the sabbath to do good or to do evil to save life or destroy it he looked around at them all and then he said to the man stretch out your hand he did so his hand was completely restored but they were furious were they furious that the man got healed no They were furious that he didn't love the law more than the man. 
And they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now Mark in that same account says Jesus was angry at their stubborn hearts. And he said to them, you notice, have you never read? Now, that was meant to sting, and it did. Of course they've read. They have read the Old Testament all their lives. And Jesus is basically saying, how did you miss it? How did you guys miss it? David was hungry, and he ate the consecrated bread. And God was okay with it, because people are more important than rituals. And God made the man and then made the Sabbath. He didn't do it the other way around. So by precedent and by principle, the law that you claim to be expert in is making it clear on page after page, people are weightier. He said to them in Matthew 23, how terrible it will be for you teachers in religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You're careful to tithe even the tiniest part of your income. You love the law. But you ignore the important things of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. And the ugly truth is, the problem still exists today. That religion comes with this horrible propensity to get all caught up in the trappings of religion. And miss the point. There's always this kind of religion that's a lot more content with ritual obedience than intent on unconditional loving. And the thing is, we are good at justifying it. We've learned how to read the scripture and to nuance it in such a way that we can justify almost any ugly behavior to other people if we don't want them in the story. And it makes perfect sense. Until you're the person who's been written out of the story. Mark Peritsky said one time, he's a minister, that he was invited to this college to speak to this class full of minister students. And they had several ministers come and be on a panel. And one of the questions they were asked is, what teacher most influenced you? And he said, someone told this story that when they were in high school, they were in this big city And this high school was downtown, and it wasn't air-conditioned. They had to keep the windows up. And so the noise of the traffic was something they had to deal with in class. And the teacher complained every day, particularly the annoying sirens of the emergency vehicles. And every single class, the teacher complained about the noise. And then one Monday, the teacher comes in, and the first thing he does is apologize to the class. And says, that weekend... An ambulance had saved the life of his wife and his new baby. And he said, all this time, all I could hear was the noise. And I wasn't thinking about the lives. And that can happen to people like us. We can make a lot of noise and stop thinking about lives. You don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen. The truth is that God's good law in a bad heart can produce some really ugly stuff. And we want to protect our hearts from being cabinets for ugly truth. How do we do that? Two suggestions. Number one, I need to remember that I was once in a ditch. See, 
Where do you think you are in the story of the Good Samaritan? Well, I'm, I was probably the priest. No, I'm the Samaritan. No, you're not. I'll tell you where God sees you. You're the guy in the ditch. That's where you are. And that's important because where you see yourself determines how you see other people. The difference in that priest and that Samaritan is that one could see his likeness in the guy in the ditch and one couldn't. And that one that could said there, but for the grace of God go I. God saw that sin attacked you and left you for dead. And your good theology and your good works could pass on by, but they could not save you. You were in desperate shape and you needed to be rescued. And the question is, is that how you see yourself? Because if you realize you were in a ditch, then when you see somebody else in a ditch, you're not going to see the enemy. You're going to see the victim of the enemy. You're not going to see a person as a problem. You're going to see a person with a problem and there's a big difference so how do you see yourself because here's what I've learned people that don't think they were ever in a ditch people that don't think they were in desperate need people that don't realize how much they needed grace become terrible interpreters of the Bible let me say that again If you don't learn to read the Bible through the lens of how much you need mercy, you will inevitably read the Bible the wrong way and justify some pretty ugly attitudes. You better remember you were in the ditch and you need to consider that Jesus was your good Samaritan. He was the one that men hated He was the one scorned. He was the one mocked. And he came to his enemies and he met us at our point of need. He gave us the wine of his own blood and the oil of his own spirit. And he paid for all we owed and all we would ever owe. And by the way, just like in the story, he is going to come back. So one day you can thank him face to face for what he did. The key to developing a heart of compassion is to remember the heart that stopped for you. And so in Luke 6, a little later... After those two stories we read, Jesus said, you need to be merciful, just as your father is merciful. You need to remember you were in a ditch. And God wants you to give to somebody else what he gave to you. I think the best vaccine against ugly truth is to remember where I was in the story and what God did to rescue me. That's why I think it's important. That's why I'm glad at a church that every week takes some time to take some bread and take some wine. I know maybe to some of you that may seem a little redundant or monotonous, not to me. Every week we need to protect our hearts by remembering where we are in this story. We were in the ditch. And if we remember that, if we read the Bible that way, I think we'll start to realize some important things. Here's number one. Ugly situations are not to be avoided. I think that's one of the points of this story. You see, it's not hard for me to be a good neighbor if you let me put a gate up in my neighborhood and I only let the people I like inside. I can be a good neighbor if you let me decide who gets to live in the neighborhood. 
But you can't claim that you have picked up a cross and followed Jesus if you are living a self-protective life inside your Christian cocoon where you never have to deal with ugly situations. This story is calling us to move out into a world that is filled with ugly. Jesus said the Samaritan came where the man was. The man didn't have to find him. But we've learned how to practice religion without ever having to do that. There was a very famous study at Princeton Seminary a few decades ago. They took these seminary students preparing to be ministers. And they put them in two groups. And one group was told, we want you to go give a talk on the different kinds of jobs you can get when you get out of seminary. And they sent them out one by one to a building to give a talk. The other group, they said, we want to see how you've grown as a preacher. So we're going to give you a text and send you out to preach a sermon. Now, what the students didn't know is the whole thing was a setup. That no matter which group you were in, as you walked to where you were supposed to go, they had planted a man who looked drunk, semi-conscious, laying down, moaning, clearly in distress. And they wanted to study if one group of students was more likely to stop and help the man than the other. Now, here's what they learned. It didn't matter which group you were in, neither group was likely to stop. Now, the first group was going to give a talk on what kind of jobs you can get when you get out of seminary. The second group was going to go preach a sermon. Do you want to guess what text they were given to preach on? The story of the Good Samaritan. But it didn't make a difference. Here's what they did learn. You were six times more likely to stop and help the man if you weren't in a hurry. And they concluded that in our busy society, compassion has become a luxury. Most of us really do feel bad about people in tough situations. We're just too busy to stop. And what if Jesus had said, I'm just too busy. To go where they are. Can I just write a check? The incarnation declares the incongruity of long distance compassion. Good neighbors enter the world with their eyes open. And with their hands open and their hearts open. And by looking for other people. They wind up looking like Jesus. This story is Jesus saying to his church, the world is ugly, and I'm not asking you to see how far away from it you can stay. I'm asking you to come beside the people in the ditch. And ugly situations are not to be avoided. Second, I think Jesus is saying that religion is ugly when the main thing does not remain the main thing. And the main thing is not ritual purity. And the main thing is not personal safety. And the main thing is not even doctrinal orthodoxy. The main thing is to love God passionately. And to love people 
purposefully, even if they don't love you back. Because later in the Bible, it says, if you don't love, it doesn't matter what else you do right. It's nothing to God if you don't remember the main thing. See, I think it's significant. Again, hear the story through the eyes of a Jew. When Jesus said the Samaritan took out oil and wine, and you're a Jew, you know oil and wine are what priests use when they're serving God in the temple. In other words, what the priest was using to serve God in the temple, the Samaritan was using to love people out on the street. And God wants you to take what you're doing in the temple and take it out to the street. And too often we're keeping what God wants us to use in the temple. And we get in here and we will fuss and we will fight and we will argue and split churches over the rituals inside the temple. And to the people in the street, it looks silly. And to God, it looks ugly. Whenever you have a choice between a person and a thing, you choose the person every time. I like sports stories. And so I remember last year reading about a guy named Bill Havens. It was 1924, and he was a rower. And he was good enough to represent America in the Olympics. And he trained for years. Because this was his one shot to go to Paris and win the gold. However, the date of the Olympics was about the same time as the due date of his wife's first baby. Now they didn't have supersonic jets back then. To get to Paris you had to get on a ship. It took a long time to get there and it took a long time to get home. And so he's got to decide, do I go and try to win the gold? Or do I stay home and be there when my first child is born? And his wife even said, Bill, you have worked all your life for this. You'll never get this chance again. Go to Paris. But he didn't. He stayed home and stayed with his wife. Wouldn't you know she was late in delivery? His team won the gold, the gold he could have won. If he had gone, he could have won the gold, got on the boat, and come back and still been there when the baby was born. And so for years after, he was asked, do you regret it? Do you regret not going to Paris? And he would say every time, not one bit. My son will always know he was the most important thing. You'll never regret keeping the main thing the main thing. One more thing. I think this story is telling us that nothing is uglier than justifying hatred and indifference. This is more than just a story about roadside assistance. This story was designed by Jesus on purpose. It's the reason he put the Samaritan in the story. To make us face our propensity 
and our desire to take certain groups that we just don't like and write them out of God's story. Because after all, they're not the right color. They got too many tattoos. They're from the wrong side of town. I don't like their accent. They're not even supposed to be in this country. They don't vote for the right president. And we find all kinds of ways to actually justify these feelings we have for groups of people. That lawyer was so filled with hate that when Jesus said who was the neighbor, he couldn't even let the word Samaritan come out of his lips. But I wonder, that guy in the ditch, when he finally came to in the end and found out who helped him, do you think maybe for the first time in the, his life the word Samaritan could come out of his lips and it not be an insult? Maybe he wasn't just rescued physically. Maybe he was rescued from having a heart full of hate. God's telling a story that's big enough for everybody. And the ugly truth is, sometimes his people haven't told his story very well. But... Sometimes they have. A few years back, Reader's Digest had this neat story about a guy named Ray Hamley. September 26, 1944, he's flying for the British Air Force over Germany. He drops his load of bombs on this town called Cleve, just inside the border of Holland. And, of course, they hit their target, but he knew that they probably hit some other places as well. In fact, he suspected they may have destroyed a church. But war is war, and collateral damage is part of it. He goes on to England and becomes a principal of a primary school. Thirty-nine years later, he's retired. He gets this note talking about this town in Germany called Cleve that is finally rebuilding their church, the Church of St. Mary. He went up to his attic and got out his logbook. He realized, that's the church I destroyed. He wrote a note to the mayor of that little town in Germany asking forgiveness for what he'd done. And the minister of that church wrote him back and said, you're completely forgiven. Would you please come and be our guest at the dedication of our rebuilt church building? He was too filled with shame to come and be with his former enemies. He turned down the invitation, but a few weeks later, he got another letter, and this time it was signed by 500 members of that church saying, would you please come and worship in our new building with us? And he did. And enemies became brothers. Because when the church is at her best, nobody does neighbor better.
Nobody told stories better than Jesus. Because the best stories always have a surprise ending. Let me show you one more picture. This is Frank. It's 1952. He's in Helsinki. He's just won the gold medal in rowing at the Summer Games. And he sends home this note to his dad by cablegram. Dad, I won. I'm bringing home the gold medal you lost while waiting for me to be born. Someday the son is going to look into the eyes of every single person that gave out a cup of cold water in his name. And he's going to say, you lost nothing. And here's your reward. And that's the beautiful truth. Would you stand up, please? As we sing this song, if you would like to come to Christ today and be baptized, there'll be some ministers down front to receive you. This song is an invitation song asking you to respond right where you are. We all know that in the house of the Lord we can raise our hands and praise Him. But this song and this story is saying when you go out into the street this week, will you hold up your hand every time God needs a neighbor and say, Here I am, Lord. What do you need me to do? Because worship is more than what happens right now. If you need to be baptized, come to the front while we sing.